0: Making history his story. Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Moses, thank you for that introduction. We'll get the show started off with some sponsors. As you know, we list all the sponsors on the webpage, DerekIzzy.com. And I have some news. We have some brand new sponsors that are in the works. Contracts are being negotiated, and you will see that information starting in 2019. As a reminder, sponsors do tend to change, so visit the website DerekIzzy.com for an updated list of sponsors who help make this show possible. And thank you to you, All the listeners for making this show possible too. The combination of listeners and sponsors help keep the show going, driving success and driving our numbers, which helps us continue to produce new episodes. Today's episode is a special two-part episode. By two-part episode, this is going to be a combination of two shorter shows. Typically, the podcast goes for, I don't know, around 20 minutes. Today's show will be split up into two topics that will be about 10 minutes each. Today's show will be a two-part episode with two completely different topics. This is something a little bit new, bringing it to you because these topics are a little bit shorter than the topics that I typically discuss on the show. To give you a little bit of a background... Let's talk about aerial photography. Way back in 1858, a French photographer took the very first aerial photograph. Now, back in those days, photography was still new. It had only been around for about 30 years. So taking an aerial photograph was something crazy and very different. The French photographer was able to do this by setting up a miniature darkroom inside a balloon basket and sending it up into the air to take the photograph. Unfortunately, that photograph no longer exists. However, there was another one taken in 1860, also from Up in a Balloon, that was taken by James Wallace Black over the city of Boston. That was back in 1860. It was called Boston as the eagle and wild goose sees it. Aerial photography was definitely new and definitely a game changer in the world of photography. And where would photography go? What use would aerial photography have in the real world? What ideas would be gained by taking pictures from a camera in a balloon? Well, my friends, that started the aerial photography revolution. Of course, the military was one of the first government entities to jump onto this technology. During the Civil War, the Union Army used aerial photography in balloons to get an idea of where the Confederates were set up. There were some testing of kites, hooking a camera up to a kite, flying it through the air, and trying to get aerial photographs. Later on in the 1800s, A photograph was taken from a kite using a timed camera. Alfred Nobel. I'm sure you've heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. He was very into aerial photography. He actually patented an improved mode of obtaining photographic maps. Basically by putting a camera attached to a rocket. This was in 1896, so the technology was primitive... But he could launch the camera up into the air, it would take one photograph, and then parachute to the ground. Now, Nobel died before this actually happened, but it's rumored that his team of scientists was able to get this accomplished. As aerial photography started to spread, the first man to use an airplane to take an aerial photograph was L.P. Bonvillain. And who was the pilot of that plane? None other than Wilbur Wright. Of the Wright brothers. One year later, Wright was piloting another plane that took the world's first aerial movie. Back in 1903, an apothecary in the German town of Kronberg near Frankfurt, Germany, had a father who used to handle prescriptions from a sanatorium via pigeon post. The sanatorium closed and the pigeon post was discontinued. But our apothecary, named Julius, decided to continue the practice with his own pigeons. What is this practice of pigeon prescriptions, you might say? Check this out. This is a very unique and original idea, but this is how pigeons were used back in those days. You could attach the prescription to the pigeon, and the pigeon would fly to its destination. Pigeons always seem to remember where they were going, so you could reliably have a pigeon fly small items back and forth between the sanatorium and the pigeon post. Julius's father was able to master this technique and use it successfully. So now, take the aerial photograph and merge it with the pigeon carrying the prescriptions. And now you have pigeons with the ability to fly and take aerial photographs. Our apothecary named Julius took full advantage of this. He is credited with inventing pigeon photography back in 1907. He set up a pigeon with an aluminum breast harness where they would attach a lightweight time-delayed miniature camera He applied for a patent on this device, and it was initially rejected. But a year later, the patent was granted after he was able to display the photographs taken by his pigeon technique. And, of course, it did not take the military long to catch on to this one. Pigeons were signing up for the Air Force in record numbers. Well, okay, that's not true. They weren't signing up for the Air Force, but they were used in World War I for aerial reconnaissance. They had the ability to fly over enemy lines and not be detected. You're looking for soldiers and bombs and planes. Birds are just going to be there. World War I interest in pigeon photography quickly ended as Julius ended his pigeon photograph-taking practices. Years later in World War II, the Germans and the French renewed this interest the CIA here in America developed a battery-powered camera that could be attached to a pigeon and sent across enemy lines to take pictures. In 1942, the Soviet Army discovered abandoned German trucks left over from World War II in which they had tiny cameras that could take photographs in five-minute intervals as well as dogs that were trained to carry pigeons in baskets. In 1943, it was reported that the American Signal Corps was aware of the possibility of using pigeon spies. You can see this battery-operated pigeon camera that the CIA came up with in the CIA's museum's virtual tour. Now, on the website, you won't be able to find any information about the camera because that is still classified, but you can see the actual camera. This fleet of pigeon spies, they flew at a height of 150 to 300 feet, undetected, and they could very easily make it through enemy lines without being shot. However, as technology advanced, the use of pigeon spies was drastically reduced as the military started using cameras that were attached to planes. As the militaries further developed the planes, aerial photography took a new twist, and the era of the pigeon spy was ended. Now, pigeons were an important part of World War I and World War II, but as animal spies, it was crucial for them to be protected. Born in August of 1813 was Henry Berg. His father, Christian Berg, was a successful shipbuilder who had completed a series of contracts for the government. When he died in 1843, Henry Berg inherited a huge estate. He was rich. He attended Columbia College, but quit before he could finish his degree. He decided to travel through Europe. He spent a total of five years going around Europe, exploring, learning, taking in the culture. In 1862, he was appointed by President Abraham Lincoln as the secretary of the American legation in Tsarist Russia. He served part of his post in St. Petersburg, Russia, but had troubles with the cold weather. Russia goes through a very severe winter, and Henry Berg just was not built for that. Did not like the cold weather. But while he was there, he observed something. In the streets of Russia, the wealthier people that Berg would witness... They owned horses, and they were peasants who would drive the horses, escorting the diplomats and the rich people around Russia. When the horses did not perform at the level that was expected, the drivers would beat the horses. Henry Berg witnessed a few such beatings and was appalled by it. Upon returning to the States at a meeting in New York, he's quoted as saying, "...this is a matter purely of conscience." It has no perplexing side issues. It is a moral question in all its aspects. This was the beginning of Henry Berg's quest to protect animals. He spoke to the New York State Legislature about the horrors he had witnessed while he was in Russia and then upon returning to the United States, being very observant of the treatment of animals, especially the workhorses. And he spoke and convinced the legislature to pass the charter which incorporated the ASPCA on April 10th, 1866. This was the very first anti-cruelty law in the United States. Part of his quest, he would inspect slaughterhouses, dog fights. He traveled around the country lecturing in schools and to social groups He became the face of the animal rights movement. As president of the ASPCA, he received no financial compensation. He and his wife initially provided all the funding for the organization, but as branches of the ASPCA started to pop up all over the United States and Canada, it became a government-funded organization, partially funded by the government. Back in the early days... The main issues were animal transportation, care of workhorses, cockfighting, dogfighting, and the use of live pigeons in shooting matches, bringing us back to the pigeons. Henry Berg and the ASPCA are partially credited for the use of clay pigeons in trap shooting, something that is common today. Back in the old days, they used to shoot real pigeons. His initial staff was only of three people. Berg was quoted as saying, Day after day, I'm in slaughterhouses or lying in wait at midnight with a squad of police near some dog pit, lifting a fallen horse to his feet, penetrating buildings where I inspect collars and saddles for raw flesh, then lecturing in public schools to children and again to adult societies. Thus, my whole life is spent. In 1867, the ASPCA operated the first ambulance for injured horses. Some of the little things they did, supplying horses that pulled carts on the streets of Manhattan with fresh water, the public fountains that were created for this ended up being used by cats and dogs and sometimes people. Henry Berg's life was devoted to saving animals. By the time he died in 1888, 37 out of the 38 states in the Union had passed anti-cruelty laws for animals. As the ASPCA grew, so did their influence and the type of animal cruelty that they dealt with. They also led prosecutions. In 1867, a man was sentenced to 10 days in prison for beating a cat to death. Upon hearing this verdict of being found guilty, the man said that the arresting officer ought to be disemboweled, at which point a $25 fine was added to his punishment. But this was an uphill battle for Henry Berg. It was common practice for people to beat their horses and to treat their animals like slaves. Like all they expected was hard work, and the animal wasn't allowed to get tired. The animal wasn't allowed to be injured. They had to perform whatever work needed to be done at any given time. Giving animals a say in the matter, almost giving them rights, was something that was very unpopular at the time, and very unheard of, but Henry Berg made it happen with the ASPCA. As the type of animals that were used in providing services to humans, the work of the ASPCA changed over the years. One of the biggest wars that the ASPCA waged was against Dog Dogfighting dog fighting was very, very popular in the late 1800s, and as the ASPCA cracked down on it, the practice slowly went away. Shelters started to open up. Shelters for animals in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the New York area. The public was so happy with the ASPCA that in 1895 a law was amended that established another shelter and another shelter and another shelter. Cats were written into the law as a protected animal species. The ASPCA started developing government contracts to protect animals and round up strays and offer shelter to animals that had nowhere to go. A bit of factual information here that from the 1950s to the 1960s, America had made such huge strides with pet care and animal life that the lifespan of cats and dogs had actually increased by two to three years. The average lifespan increased just because of the better care that pets were receiving. In 1896, 654 dogs and 163 cats were adopted from ASPCA shelters. Current day, we are talking thousands and thousands of animals every year that get adopted. By 1863, the ASPCA was up to 25 uniformed officers. Dog licenses were the next step. By the 1970s, the pet population was booming. The ASPCA started a campaign to spay and neuter pets, a technique that would help control the booming pet population and reduce the number of strays. From 1894 to 1994, the ASPCA operated the Municipal Animal Shelter System in New York City, which inevitably euthanized unadopted animals. Now, in 1977, the New York City Department of Health went into a contract with the ASPCA to help fund and operate the shelter system. However, determining that this shelter system ended up turning into a kill shelter, where so many animals ended up being euthanized, the contract was terminated. In 1995, the Center for Animal Care and Control took over the operation of the shelter system. What did Henry Berg start with the ASPCA? Well, he really started a different way of looking at things. Seeing animals being mistreated and actually giving the animals a voice in their treatment kind of led to a new way of thinking. Encouraged by the results of the ASPCA, a new organization was founded. One of its co-founders, Elbridge Thomas, encouraged by the success of the ASPCA, a new organization was formed. This one, not for the protection of animals, but for the prevention of cruelty to children. The year was 1874. The New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children was formed, incorporated in 1875. So yes, the ASPCA was founded first, And then eight years later, the prevention of cruelty for children came about. But one could argue that neither would have come about without the help of Henry Berg. Berg was a critical part of the prevention of cruelty of children. He actually secured custody in 1874 of a child that was taken away from a foster mother as she was convicted of assault and battery on the child. This child had been beaten by her foster mother on a daily basis. And a bystander approached Henry Berg and asked why there was no society prevention of cruelty to children. That became one of Henry Berg's new missions. Again, much like the ASPCA, laws were passed that protected children from abuse. And the organization grew and grew and started taking in government funding. While the initial purpose of the organization was just to protect children that were severely beaten, the purpose of the organization, much like the ASPCA, started to grow as well. They started providing food and clothing and medical care. and assisting foster parents, they passed laws that required parents to provide food, clothing, and medical care for their children. They passed laws that prevented the sale of alcohol to minors, treating juveniles as separate from adults in the criminal courts. They passed laws prohibiting the employment of children in sweatshops. Now, politically, opponents to the Organization Against the Cruelty of Children have argued that it really wasn't about children's rights. Part of it was just a desire to control the working class because Henry Berg himself spoke out in favor of flogging children as a form of discipline during some of their earlier meetings. But it's definitely true that the prevention for cruelty of children helped to establish a more humanitarian definition of child cruelty. To this day, the organization is still around and still performing in New York State. And as I conclude today's podcast with a couple interesting facts about pigeons and the ASPCA that you were not aware of, before you heard this show, hopefully. The official seal for the ASPCA, unveiled in 1867, shows an angel of mercy protecting a fallen cart horse from a spoke-wielding abuser. Now, Henry Berg died in 1888. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow eulogized Berg as among the noblest in the land, friend to every friendless beast. Would Henry Berg have been in favor of the protection of pigeon spies? Definitely, because he spoke out against clay pigeon shootings. In more recent times, pigeon spies are still being used. Recently, police in India detained a pigeon on suspicion of espionage. Its feathers were stamped with suspicious numbers and words, and its coloring suggested that it was a species from neighboring Pakistan. Pakistan and India are enemies. Could pigeon spies still exist? Back in the Cold War days, the CIA actually hired animal trainers to train pigeons, ravens, and crows. The CIA had learned that ravens and crows were actually able to tell the difference between objects and surfaces, and they could be taught to deposit items in particular places. For example, If there was a skyscraper and you needed to place a bug outside the window of a suspect that you were trying to trap in an investigation, a bird could be trained to fly up to that window and place a listening device outside the window. Birds could also be trained to fly up to the window and take pictures. In 2010... A researcher at the University of Washington began teaching crows to identify individual faces. The U.S. military actually considered using this technique to find out whether or not birds were intelligent enough and could learn to recognize suspected terrorist faces. There is a rumor that this was a technique they had considered before sending the Navy SEAL team in to get Osama bin Laden. So the next time you're outside and you see a bird fly by, do a double take, because that could be a bird spy, because now you know the rest of the story. Thank you for listening to The Derek Izzy Show. reminder, go to DerekIzzy.com, check out the website, check out the sponsors. Tell your friends and family about the show. Get on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called The Derek Izzy Show, and it is free to share. It doesn't take any time. Share it on your timeline. Share it on your friend's timeline. We need the show to grow, and that will only happen with the loyalty of all of you listeners. Also, if you'd like Moses to read your review on the air, you can submit a five-star review using the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. Look up The Derek Izzy Show, write a five-star review, and you may be selected to have it read on the air by none other than the great Moses Ronald. Good day.